You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. A lot of reasons to be thankful. And we're so blessed. And, uh, you know, the primary reason we're blessed is because we, we have a Savior who died on a cross for our sins. Um, but among that, uh, under that umbrella, we have a lot of other things that he sure does for us, doesn't he? And we should just be thankful this morning. I'm thankful for that truth today and uh, thankful that we can say we've been blessed. And I look around here and just say we've been blessed. You know, God has blessed Eastside Baptist Church. And, and I think about the friends we, we have and the, the church family that we get to enjoy. Don't ever take for granted God is behind all of it, and those provisions that come from our Father who's good to us. So, Romans chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. Um, every believer has felt the struggle and frustration of sin. I know that I have. I, if you've been saved for any length of time, then I think that you probably have as well. It's like uh, sin is this relentless enemy. That, that just constantly stalks you and shows up out of nowhere to take you down. Uh, the sin nature is just one of those things that it's like you can never get rid of it. It's always around every corner. And, and I know I'm going to preach another politically incorrect message this morning and talk about sin again, as I mentioned last week. But, I mean, the sin nature is, is a, a tough enemy, isn't it? A few years ago, uh, we at, at Men's Advance is what we call it. It's a men's meeting that we'd host at our church. We, we came up with this idea for these skits. And, and in these skits, it was a, basically the, the idea for the theme of Men's Advance that year was about Moses and, and Pharaoh. And, and the idea for the skits was uh, us overcoming sin, but, but there's just somebody, it, the sin just pops up and it just shows up around every corner. So... We had a, a young man that dressed up like Pharaoh for our video skits, and, and we would have a guy just kind of living his life and doing normal things, but around every corner, Pharaoh would show up and just physically pummel him. So in a men's meeting, all you need is some physical comedy or someone getting beat up, and everyone jumps in and likes it. So, and, and so he would be just doing things like he was at, you know, at work, and then something pops up on the computer screen, and and he's tempted to look and then Pharaoh shows up and takes him down. Or he's driving through a drive through and something catches his eye and, and he's tempted and Pharaoh just shows up and pulls him out of the car. You know, everywhere you turn, here's Pharaoh. And, and that really does feel like the, the Christian life we live sometimes. And that no matter where we go or what we face, sin shows up. And everywhere we turn it, and when you're struggling with something, it's like no matter what you do, you, you try to get away from it, but you just... It just shows up at every turn. From the newest Christian to the oldest saint, the fight against sin is a constant battle. Even the great apostle Paul, we could go to the next chapter here in Romans and, and read it, and we look at how he felt the weight of the struggle just to, to have victory over sin. He, you know, the good that he wanted to do, he couldn't do. The, the evil that he didn't want to do, that was, was what was reigning in his life. And, and he just couldn't seem to, to get through it. And, and I think about Paul, and I can't imagine the apostle being anything like me. And yet when I hear his words, then they echo the same prayers that I sometimes pray to God. 
God, the wood that I, I would, the good that I would, I do not. The, the evil that I don't want to do, God, that's what I struggle with. I find myself in that very, that very position. I find myself, I could have written the words that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. We're all sinners. We're born that way. And yes, many in here, and I would assume that the vast majority in here are saved, but we battle the flesh. We battle that sin nature. We do every day. It shows up at every turn. We come around the corner and there's Pharaoh again. It's always there. And you know, sometimes in the Christian life, we start to feel like the underdog. We start to feel like we're expected to lose. We start to feel like, well, you know, my job or my role in this is just to, you know, the few times that I'm able to escape, then I do. But for the rest of the time, I'm really at a disadvantage in my Christian life uh, because I'm the underdog. Sin, that's how powerful, that's how strong sin is. And we start to look at ourselves like we're supposed to lose. And I don't know if you've ever been involved in sports or in anything like that, anything competitive like that. If you go in with the mentality that, well, we're going to lose, guess what? You're going to lose. We, we, we view the Christian life where, like we're the underdogs, but Paul wants the Romans to realize that even though the fight with the flesh seems overwhelming, it's not a battle that they have to lose. Your Christian life, you know, sin, the sin nature does not have to defeat you. As a matter of fact, they weren't underdogs. We're not underdogs in the contest in this fight against sin. We are equipped, according to what the Bible says, we are equipped to be the favorites. You know, you could say it this way. If you're a believer, you were made to win against sin. If you're a child of God, deliverance from the bonds of sin is not some tangible black magic potion that you may stumble upon sometimes on your journey toward enlightenment. You know, we we sometimes think, I mean, I bet, well, some think that there's a, you know, once you get to a certain level of maturity, then you can have victory against sin. Once you reach a certain level in your Christian life, once you've been saved a certain number of years, uh, you have to get to this level of sanctification before you can have victory. But the truth is, a person saved yesterday has as much as they're at their disposal to win against sin as someone who's been saved for 50 years. It's not about experience. It's not about tactics. It's not about outsmarting our sin nature. If it was, that means we could beat it in our own strength. But the flesh, our sin nature, our old man, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's, it, because it's not beatable by ourselves. We don't have power in ourselves to win. We don't have power in ourselves to overcome it. Winning against sin begins with an understanding about your position in Christ as a child of God. See, once we believe and once we begin to grasp the truth of what it means to be in Jesus Christ as a believer, we start to realize sin does not have to win. And so I know that I'm preaching about sin this morning and I know I'm preaching about something that people may not like in our church, modern church cultures to hear about, but I'm preaching about something that should be encouraging. I'm preaching about something that I hope will be a help to you and that you can win against sin. And if you want to win against it, Romans 6 is a great place to start. It's a wonderful chapter to provide some help. This is going to be a different kind of message, I think, this morning than the ones I've been preaching it, it will be very doctrinal, it'll be very practical and even instructional today, 
Um, but sometimes we just need to understand the basics. We just need to stop and look at what the Bible says about our position in Christ to, to see that we can win against sin. Paul's given the Romans rich doctrinal truth about righteousness, and he, he's talking about faith, he's talking about justification, but he also gives them practical realities that are the result of those big picture truths. See, that's one thing that I think we disconnect sometimes in that we assume that doctrine or learning about doctrine uh, is just something that's kind of for the intellectual. Just something that the person that wants to have a lot of information, they would study doctrine. But as you study doctrine, it starts to affect your daily life. It has practical effects on your life as a Christian. So Paul's subject is sin in the life of a believer. And he makes it clear that a child of God can win against it. The beginning of chapter 6 is connected to some truths that Paul ends chapter 5. And look at chapter 5, verse 20. He says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul starts by, uh, leads into Romans 6 by talking about grace. And you hear a lot about grace these days, and, and uh, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about grace, but as a Christian, we should not be afraid to talk about grace. Uh, God's grace is extremely important to the Christian life, um, but it's one of those things that can be twisted if we're not careful. See, Paul's helping the Romans to understand salvation is all about God's grace. It has nothing to do with our works. Grace is able to overcome even the greatest of our sins. Now, let me just mention again, and I've mentioned this before, um, just because we preach about grace or talk about grace, it does not mean that we are Calvinists. It does not mean that we believe that God selects those to be saved and that it is all about grace and that you have no choice in the matter or that if you're selected to not have grace, that you don't get to be saved. That's not our position at all because I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. But grace can be, though misconstrued, And we see Paul here in Romans 6 trying to answer some of those things before they misconstrue what he's saying. See, in verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, uh, it's a rhetorical question. It's as if Paul is anticipating what they might say. See, the Romans might hear that, well, where sin abounds, there's more grace. And as sin reigns unto death, even grace reigns more through righteousness. So what Paul is thinking is that the Romans might hear him say, oh, the more you sin, the more grace you have. And upon hearing that, they might say, grace is great. Grace is wonderful. I want as much grace as I can get. So if I'll just sin more so that I can have more grace. See, I believe that's the context of Romans 6.1. I don't believe the Romans were saying, oh, well, grace abounds. So, you know, I can just go sin and live like I want and I'll, it'll be all fine. No, what they're saying, I believe that the, the, the context is they're saying, I want grace in my life. And if sin, uh, if grace abounds where there's lots of sin, then I will sin more so that I can have more grace. Now, that's a twisted way to view it, but that's what Paul is dealing with. And Paul is saying, or he starts to tell them that's the wrong way to think about it. That's not what he's aiming for. His point is not that grace should open the doors for us to sin so that we can have more. No, his point is that if we've experienced God's grace in salvation, we don't have to sin because it no longer has power over us. 
even when we do sin, grace has power over our sin. God's grace doesn't give us license to sin. It simply gives us the power to be delivered from sin. That's all Paul's trying to say. Look at verse 2. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's saying if you're a believer, you're dead to sin. I mean, why would you live under its control anymore? So that's the context of Romans 6. And those are the thoughts that directs Paul that direct Paul's thesis here, he wants them to understand that they have resources available to win against sin. They don't have to live in sin. They don't have to live in sin so more grace abounds. They don't have to be subjected to sin. And he starts with some things that the Romans should know. And this is very important. Understand, we cannot live the Christian life in any form of success unless we know what God's revealed word says about our Christian life. Everything that we, that we have as a resource is something that we are to know. And that's where he starts. Notice how often he uses the word know in this chapter. Look at verse 3. He says, know you not. Look at verse 6. He says, knowing this. Look at verse 9. He says, knowing that. Look at verse 16. He says, know ye not. Are you getting the idea that in order for us to win against sin, that there are some things we better know? I think it's pretty obvious. Starts with knowing what is true. Paul allows that just because some things may be true, it doesn't mean that the Romans know that they are true. It, and, and, and what I think is happening is, you know, they get saved, and it was almost as if maybe the Romans didn't have the, all the knowledge they needed to be successful against sin. It's kind of like if someone paid your house off 20 years ago and they never told you about it. That would not be a nice, uh, a, a nice friend. I mean, if you're going to pay off my house, at least let me know so I don't keep making payments. Well, that's kind of what the, is the situation, I believe, for the Romans. See, once you're saved, there's a lot of things that are true, but you may just not know them yet. There may be a lot of things at your disposal, but you're just not aware of it yet. That's why, by the way, that we need to be in church. That's why we need to be in the Bible. That's why we need fellowship with other saints because you may know a lot, but I may not know a lot. And you may know some things that I wish that I would know or wish that I knew so that I could be a better Christian. There are some things that we need to know if we're going to win against sin. That's what Paul's talking about. That's where he's leading them to. He wants them to know some things. And first, he wants them to know their position in Christ. Look at verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. So there's a lot of confusion about this verse. You're probably thinking, what in the world does that mean? I don't know I had to get baptized to be saved. Well, as Baptists, as Bible-believing Baptists, we don't believe that you do have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's not what this verse is teaching. And if you read the New Testament, then I don't believe that's what the New Testament teaches either. Salvation is of faith. But he says, know your position in Christ. The word baptism is not referring to water. It's not referring to the step of obedience after a person gets saved. It's referring to what happens to us at the moment of salvation. You say, what do you mean by baptism? Well, baptism means to place into or immerse. Okay? So, so when we baptize up here in our baptistry, 
uh, we're immersing someone into the water, we're placing them into the water. Baptism has not as much to do with water as it does to do with what is happening. It's immersion we're placing into. So Paul is saying here that when we're saved, we're placed into Jesus Christ. We're, we're immersed into Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. It's talking about God. And that God baptizes us into Christ. He places us into Christ. This is not a gentle term, by the way. Sometimes we baptize and we try to make it as gentle and easy as possible. But baptism is not gentle. See, it's, baptism is burial. Baptism implies death. Jesus is using, Jesus even used the term over in Mark 10 when he said to his disciples, but he said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask, can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Over there in Mark chapter 10, the word baptized was not you, Jesus was not saying, Can you be baptized into the water like I'm going to be? No, he was talking about his death. His upcoming death, and he uses the word baptism in its context. He says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Can you be buried like I'm going to be? Can you be killed and placed into the ground like I'm going to be? It's a picture of death. That's baptism. That's why uh, we, we use baptism not as a way or a means to be, sal- to be saved, but as a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the death of that person, the burial of that person into Jesus Christ and then being raised to new life. It doesn't magically happen in the water. It's simply a picture of what's already happened in that person's soul. So this is a picture of death. As a Christian, it pictures death to the old life. When a person gets saved, they die with Christ. Your old life ends. Your old man died when you were placed into Jesus Christ. You are dead to sin because... You, as one placed into Jesus Christ, died to sin when he died. And I know this is a mystery. You say, how does this happen? And to that, I would say in my best theological voice, I have no idea. All I know is that God can do miracles. And God does things far beyond our understanding. And I would say about this, it is a mystery, and it is difficult to understand, but just because I don't understand exactly how it works, it does not mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it's not legitimate, simply because I can't wrap my mind around the fact that when I got saved, I was placed into Jesus Christ, and just as real as Christ died and was buried and raised again from the dead... I myself, as someone being placed into him, was, I was killed, I was buried, and I rose again in salvation. I don't know how it works. I can't explain it to you any better than that. But like the Romans, I am required to know that it's true. And in being true, the implication for all of us as believers is incredible. But let me just say this too. Just because you don't wrap your mind or you can't wrap your mind away around the way that something works... It doesn't mean that it doesn't work. There are a lot of people that, that they would say that they're skeptics and that they have to understand how something works in order to, to uh, believe it. But there's a lot of things in our daily life. I mean, I carry a cell phone around with me all the time and I still, in my brain, don't fully understand 
how a cell phone works and makes a call to somebody else. I mean, in theory I do, but who's smart enough to have figured that out? But it doesn't mean I say, I refuse to get a cell phone until I fully understand how it works. If you wait until you understand everything in order to utilize it, especially technology, I mean, you'd be living in the dark ages. So what I'm saying today is, just because I don't understand how that when I was saved, I was placed into Jesus Christ and buried with him in that tomb and then raised up again with him in resurrection, it doesn't mean it's not true. If you're saved today, then I'm telling you, according to Paul here in Romans 6, when you were saved, you were placed into Christ, you died with him, you were buried with him, and you rose with him in the resurrection. And when I start to look at it that way, it starts to make me think that I've got a lot more resources at my disposal than I realized that I did. It means that I am the recipient of every benefit of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's as, it's as if I was crucified with him. It's as if I died with him. It's as if I was buried with him and rose with him. That's how real it is to be placed into Christ, to be baptized into Christ, to be immersed into Jesus Christ. We were crucified, we were buried, and we rose with him. This is no small reality. So that's what Paul wants them to know. He says, I want you to know your position in Christ. I also want you to know what his resurrection means. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall, also, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So what does the resurrection mean? Well, if it's true, we've been united with Christ in his death, and we were also united with him when he rose from the dead. And in the same way that he was raised from the dead, we are to walk in newness of life. We are to walk in newness because Christ raised from the dead. Our old life ended with, with, with the cross. Our new life began with the resurrection. Our old life ended with the cross, but our new life begins with the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Listen, we don't just die with him and then that's it. Death in Christ, with Christ, leads to something more. We are given new life to live a different way than we were living. And I have to say this because I read the verse that your life should be different than the way you lived before you were saved. Your life should have very little resemblance to the life that you used to live in salvation. And you say, well, what about me? I was, well, you know, I was saved as a nine-year-old boy too. And there, there's not a whole lot uh, of trouble that a nine-year-old boy can get into. So the day I, before I got saved doesn't look much different than the day after I got saved. But I can tell you this, the life that I have lived after I got saved looks much different than the life I would have lived if, before, if I had never gotten saved. It should change your life. There's a lot of people out there that claim, oh, well, you know, um, I got saved, but not much has changed. You know, I just kind of added Jesus in where he fits. That is not the life that is produced if you truly got saved. 
It should look completely different than the life that you used to live. And so I say that this morning because newness of life is a trademark of a Christian life. It should look different. And if your life, if, if we were to simply remove the names and we were to look at your life with all the characteristics, all the details, all the sin, all the things that you go through and compare it to an unsaved person just by removing the name, if there's not much different, then I would start to examine myself. Because to be in Christ, to be placed with Him in death and buried and then risen, raised with Him should produce something new. And if it doesn't, we need to reevaluate that. Remember Paul's question up front, shall we continue in sin? God forbid. You're dead to sin. You should be living free from sin. And I don't want you to get lost in all this. I know there's a lot of information here. The point Paul is making is that just as sure as Christ died and was buried and rose from the dead, you died, you were buried, you rose a new creature, and you are no longer bound by the control of sin. So you should know what the resurrection means. You should also know that sin no longer has to be your master. Look at verse 6. It says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. See, before salvation, we and these earthly bodies had no choice but to serve the flesh. The lies that we used to tell, they were our master. We couldn't hardly do anything against the power. We had no resource to fight it. The lust that you may have used to have lived with in your old life, you, ought, you had no power to fight against it. You didn't have God's help on your side before you were saved. That anger, that issue that you had with anger. Yes, and many of us have issues with anger and we still fight anger, but that anger before you got saved was probably far worse than the anger you deal with now because you had no resources to fight against it. You had no help. We were, as Paul says down in verse 20, we were servants of sin. That's what our old life used to be. But Paul, now in verse 6, is telling us that the control of that indwelling sin over us has been destroyed. And in case you don't have confidence in, in God's ability to work through you and help you to win against sin, he uses, Paul uses the word destroyed. That's how sure this is. It's destroyed. Now, this doesn't mean that it's annihilated. It doesn't mean that it no longer exists. It just means that it has been put out of operation. It's been made effective. It's still there, but it's all, that body of sin still exists because we, have, we need something to walk around in. This flesh is still here. It still exists. We still have to battle against it. But when you got saved and you were placed into Christ and you were buried with Him and you were, and you were raised with Him, it says that the body of sin might be destroyed, meaning it is possible that this body still exists, but it has been rendered ineffective. It's almost like you've gone, that God gives us the power to go up and pull the plug. We can unplug it from the wall. And if it's not plugged in, it has no power over us. Our problem is that, yes, it's there and it still exists and it's been unplugged from the wall. Our problem is, though, that we walk up to the cord and we go up to the wall and we plug it back in all the time. Now, that's not God's fault. God has given us every resource available to win against sin. And if we are not winning against sin as a child of God, it is because we keep plugging it back into the wall. 
But just know this, Paul says, sin doesn't have to be your master. It doesn't have to be your boss. I love to hear little kids argue. One of my favorite little kid arguments is, you're not the boss of me. You know, it's pretty awesome to hear little kids talk about that. Um, you know, there's, there's this like authority structure in a group of children. You're not the boss of me. You know, he's the, you're not the boss of me. I love to hear little kids argue about that. Um, and, and it's pretty funny to hear them talk about it um, because, you know, it's really important to be the boss. I mean, as a kid, I always wanted to be in charge. I remember as a kid, uh, whenever I would get the little, the little button on the day that I get, got to be the line leader and lead all the kids down to the cafeteria, man, I was full of myself. I had the little boy leader button. You ever have stuff like that? Those days, I was the boss of everybody. Do you know, um, the boss of me, that whole argument, it kind of comes into play in the Christian life too. Because you have the power to tell the sin nature through the Holy Spirit's help, you're not the boss of me, and yet we submit like it's the boss of us. We operate as if it's still plugged into the wall. But we don't have to live that way. We don't have to surrender to it. You know, this body of sin, according to these verses, this body of sin no longer gets to be the boss of you. And if it is the boss of you, it's a decision that you're making. Paul writes in verse 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Dying with Christ has emancipated us. We were servants, but now we've been set free. And, you know, and I just halfway expect, when I say something like that, that there should be some excitement in you. You used to serve sin, but you've been set free. You know, the imagery Paul uses may seem a little bit harsh, but to compare our lives to being dead is accurate. It's like you can't, you know, the illustration that I think of here is that you can't tempt a dead man. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful yesterday. We had a funeral right here in this room. And Denny Heiser laid here in a, in a coffin. And his body was here. But Dennis Heiser, praise the Lord, had received Christ as his Savior. And Dennis Heiser, the real Dennis, is in heaven right now with Jesus Christ. But his body laid here in this, in this box yesterday. And there was not one thing that I could have done to tempt Dennis Heiser to sin yesterday. Because his body, as he's dead to sin. You can't tempt a dead man. You can't entice him. You can't convince him to make a wrong decision. You can't, I mean, if he has a weakness uh, for, for something, I, I couldn't have gone up to him and, and put it in front of his nose and, and tempted him yesterday. And again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but the illustration is helpful. It's what Paul uses. He says, if we have been saved, we are dead to sin. And we no longer have to serve sin and a dead man can't be tempted by sin. I can't tempt a dead man to eat too much. If a dead man is a smoker, I can't tempt him to smoke. If he's into drinking, I can't attempt him to drink anymore. I can't attempt or, I can't attempt or make him lust anymore. It has absolutely no effect on him. And that is how Paul describes our Christian life. We are as, we are as free from sin... 
as someone who has died. In the same way that a lifeless body doesn't respond to stimulation, we no longer have to respond to that terrible master that is our flesh. We don't have to give in to temptation. We have a choice. And it's important for us to understand this is not saying we will no longer sin. We are still sinners. We won't be completely free from the presence of sin until this flesh is done away with and we get new bodies. But what Paul is saying, and what I'm trying to get you to understand this morning, is that sin does not have to be in control of your life anymore. I now can choose which master gets to be the boss of me. It is now possible to be delivered from sin. You've probably heard this illustration before. You're renting a home or renting an apartment and every month your rent comes due. So your landlord comes walking around the neighborhood or the apartment complex and he comes with his hand out. What does he expect you to do on the first of the month? Pay your rent. So you live in this same house for years and years and and by the way, if you rent too long, you should just buy a house. It's more responsible. But I'm not, you know, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. But, you, but your landlord comes around. And at the first of every month for years and years and years, he comes with his hands out. And he says, time for the rent. So you take out your checkbook. You write his name. You write the total. You give him the check. And he says, see you next month. For years and years and years, on the first of every month, that landlord comes by and you pay him your rent and then he goes on his way. Well, after 10 years of living in the same home, you don't realize it, but that landlord dies. And his property then is sold to somebody else. But that landlord's son, on the first of every month, the old landlord's son keeps coming by and says, oh, right, your rent is due. And then a couple hours later, the new landlord comes by and says, now the rent is due. Now, you would be a fool to keep paying both landlords because the old landlord no longer owns your house. You only owe that rent to the new landlord. That's the rightful owner. The title has been transferred to him. And just because the old landlord comes by and knocks on your door, it doesn't mean you have to pay him a penny. See, Mr. Smith has died. Mr. Jones now owns the house. And if you're paying, still paying Mr. Smith's family, you're a fool. But see, that's a great picture of many people in their Christian life. See, years ago when you got saved, there was a change of ownership. And you've got a new landlord, and his name is Jesus Christ. He bought you, he owns you, he saved you, he's the only one that you have to pay. And yet that old landlord, that old sin nature, the old man, our flesh, whatever you want to call it, still comes by with his hands out every day. 
and we, like fools, pull out our wallet and we keep putting money in His hands. Listen, I'm here to tell you today that the rightful ownership to your life as a child of God belongs to one landlord. His name is Jesus Christ. And you are no longer obligated to pay the old landlord anymore. Stop paying the old landlord. One of them owns you. His name is Jesus. And he's the best landlord you'll ever have. The other landlord's looking to take advantage of you. He's trying to make you slip up. He's trying to give you a miserable life. He's trying to make you be, uh, lack joy. He's trying to take away everything in your life that matters. He wants you to be miserable. He wants you to be destroyed. He wants you to live uh, so far below what is possible for you as a Christian He's the hardest master you've ever had, and yet many, even in this room potentially today, are still paying the old landlord. The unbeliever is a slave to sin, and even though Christians have been set free, we still treat sin like it's the boss of me. As a slave, if you had been set free one day, you wouldn't come back to work the next day. You'd be finding a new place to go live and a job and to work for yourself and to make your own money and to have freedom to do what you want. And yet many Christians are like the slave that goes right back to the plantation. After that emancipation proclamation, if I had been in that position, I'd be running around free, doing what I wanted to do, enjoying my freedom. I would not have gone back. Yet many Christians are still living under their old master. They're still paying the old landlord. Child of God, you're paying the wrong landlord. And if you are, it's time for you to realize what is true. You have to know your position in Christ. You have to know that He has given you victory over the power of sin. You have to know that you were buried with Him. You died with Him, but you were raised with Him as well. And there's newness of life that should be part of your new life. Stop paying the old landlord. It's time to acknowledge that you have been freed. Why are we still living as if the old landlord calls the shots? You have no obligation to him. You've been set free. I read recently, in the 1930s, there was a farmer in Michigan. And this farmer uh, found this strange-looking rock, a big rock, big enough to use as a doorstop uh, on the, porch of his, the front porch of his farmhouse. So he found it out in his field, and it's real heavy. He brought it to his porch and set it in front of his door, and years and years, since the 1930s, this rock sat on that front porch. And even when the farm changed ownership, even when there was a new owner, someone else bought the farm, there was that rock still there since literally the 1930s, so for decades. Well, the new owner, he bought the house, I think, in, 80, in the 80s. They started paying attention to the news and, and hearing about these people that uh, around the Detroit area, around the Detroit area that were, uh, I think I'm getting an issue here. In the Detroit area that were, uh, that were finding shards of meteorites and they were taking these meteorites um, to wherever you take them and selling them for thousands of dollars 
So the person that had owned the farm for 20 or 30 years it looked at this rock on the, door, on the porch and said, uh, this is a little interesting kind of a rock. Makes me wonder what it is. So they picked up that rock and took it to Central Michigan University where there's a professor that specializes in geology or something along those lines and they had this rock tested. Turns out it's the sixth largest meteorite ever found in the state of Michigan. And that rock had a value of $100,000. So for 70 or 80 years, there's a farmhouse using a rock like it's a doorstop. When really, it was worth $100,000. Made of nickel and iron. You know, I think a lot of Christians, that sums up their life as a Christian. You were, you were buried, you, were, you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ to walk with newness of life. You have a new master that gives you every resource available to live free from sin. And yet, we just leave the rock on the porch. Meaning we have something of value, something of worth, something that could give us victory over the sin that daily berates us, that daily confounds us. And we have this resource laying right there, but we don't utilize it. See, you can't utilize it if you don't know its value. And what you don't know right now, Christian, what you don't know is hurting you. If you would simply acknowledge, I've been, I was killed with Christ, I was buried with Christ, I've been raised to walk in newness of life, and he's given me every resource available to live a successful Christian life, and yet I'm still paying the old landlord. Talk about being frustrated. Talk about living a life that, that just constantly makes you feel like you can't come, overcome it. You have something of greater value than $100,000. You have victory over sin. If you've been saved by faith, stop living like you're ignorant to the resources available to you. Operate based on what you know, and that is you can win against sin. We've got another faction of people, maybe even in this room today, and you've never received Christ by faith. You've never acknowledged your sin, admitted there's no other way to heaven, repented of that sin, and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for heaven. And because of that, you certainly will never win against sin. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, the first step to winning against sin is to receive Him today. But for you Christians, still paying that old landlord, it's time to stop. For you Christians that are still working, on, uh, working under that cruel master, it's time to leave. For you Christians that are using God's resources of victory over sin as a doorstop on your front porch, it's time to go turn that thing in and utilize those resources for your advantage. You can win against sin. It's as, it's as good as done. It already happened. You were buried with Christ and raised with him. You just have to live like it. Let's all stand together.
We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.